Good morning, Doxa. Um, if you guys don't know me, my name is David. I'm one of the guys on staff here. My role at Doxa Church is to be a church planting candidate. And so basically what that means is we moved here like a year ago basically to, to be here, help this church kind of continue to grow and, and thrive, but with this vision that in a couple years, 2022, we will hope to leave this city, this place, this church, and actually to take kind of what God is doing here and then expand it to a new city, a new college town. And so um, every time you guys think about me, I would love it if you prayed for that, prayed for that, that city. We don't know where it is yet. We're trying to figure it out. We're working on it but just prayed for, for us, even like our, our marriage, our family, praying for even like the team of people who are gonna eventually jump on board with that and even praying for yourself, trying to figure out like, okay, this is something that this family of Doxa is doing. We're planting a church. Is that something that I should jump in on? So just, that's the kind of prayers that I'm, I've been praying and I love it if you guys think of me or even like, if you get bored during the sermon, you're like, I, I want, my mind wants to wander. You should pray for that. Okay, so. Here's a question I've been thinking about today and this whole week. If you have one week left on earth, what do you do with it, okay? One week left, like you, you know, you're like, this is it, okay? And it's like, and you don't need to worry about, like if you're like a guy, you're like, oh my gosh, I need to write my will. I need to, ah, oh, there's so much stuff I haven't done yet I'm supposed to, it's like, let's just say like, we're all gone in a week. What do you do with that week? So just seriously, take a minute and just think about that. What do you do? There's a bunch of different ways you could answer it, right? I mean, I think some of us maybe are just like, ah, like I'm finally gonna go to New Zealand or something, right? It's like I've been waiting to go there my whole life. I've never done it. I put it off, put it off, put it off. Always something in the way. So maybe it's like this vacation that you're just like, I'm finally gonna do it, pull the trigger. I'm gonna do this. Or maybe you're like the kind of person that's like, I have this friend I've never shared the gospel with and I've, been thinking about that a, a ton, but I've never actually done it, so I'm gonna take this week and share the gospel with these people, or, or maybe you're even like, you're like very spiritual, you know, and you're like, I would spend the entire week reading the Bible and praying, of course, because I'm gonna meet Jesus and I wanna be prepared for that, right? There's a ton of different ways you could answer this question, what do you do, but here's a question. How many of you, if this is your last week, how many of you show up for work on Monday? Right. How many of you are like, that's the first thing I'm going to do, show up early, I'm going to get those expense reports done, like I am going to crush it this week. How many of you, here's another question, how many of you would finish raking your yard with the leaves? <laughs> Someone's like, I would, yeah. Um, I've, I've raked a lot of leaves this week, so I'm thinking about this a lot. Uh, how many of you would continue writing your note cards for the test that you have Thursday? Like my, my guess is most of us would be like, yeah, uh, I'm not showing up to work. I am not studying for that test. I'm not raking any leaves in my yard, right? We're not gonna do this, but here's what's interesting. One of the things that we spend most of our lives doing, like 80 to 90% of our time while we are awake, we are doing something that we kind of freely would say, oh man, if I knew this was my last week of life, I would almost do none of that. What is it? It's work, it's just work. Labor, productivity, your job, house chores, laundry, putting numbers into spreadsheets, right? Building a deck off the back of your house, studying for finals, raking leaves, repairing leaky sinks, finishing your coding thing at work, right? Whatever it is, it's work. And we're continuing this series through Genesis and we're kind of watching the effects of sin work itself through kind of all the different areas of 
creation. We've talked about marriage. We're going to talk about relationships. And today we're talking about how sin has affected the world, specifically in regards to work. And when I talk about work, I don't just mean like your job, but I'm talking about work in like a much larger definition, right? If you literally go online, you just Google work. The very first definition you get is a good one. It just says any activity involving mental or physical effort done in order to achieve a purpose or result. So it doesn't matter if you're getting a paycheck for it, right? That's a career. But work is just anything you kind of put yourself to to achieve a purpose or result. Sweeping the floor, planning a vacation, clocking in at your job, brushing your kids' teeth, right? Everything from woodworking to city planning. And one of the things Genesis is trying to help us understand and why and how is it that work most of the time is so freaking horrible, right? Like, it's so hard, it's so frustrating a lot of the time. And Genesis wants to actually talk about that. Why is the world the way it is? Especially when it comes to work, productivity, getting things done. First thing, the design of work, okay? One of the things that Genesis wants to help us understand is the world we live in today is not the world that was originally created to be, right? Like things used to be different. And so one of the interesting things is that we actually see work does not exist now because of sin and because of the fall. And it's like work is basically just evidence that the world is broken. But actually the story of Genesis says that work is something that existed before sin entered the story. There was work to do in the Garden of Eden and there was actually lots of work to do in the Garden of Eden. And so Genesis 2, Verses five says this, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. But then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And he became a living creature and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east And he put the man there whom he had formed. Now, we've been kind of going over a lot of this story, kind of, again, looking at it from different angles. But one of the things we see when we look at it is that creation itself is intended, is designed, so that it actually needs a cultivator. It needs a worker in it, right? It says, when there was no man to work the ground. So this means that creation doesn't actually just stay good and useful, but creation as it is designed is meant to be created and cultivated and furthered by humanity. That means that work, even kind of small and seemingly mundane tasks in our world, those things existed before sin and death entered our story, right? They're called to work and keep a garden. So that means like you've got like, you're like shoveling and like raking and you're you're, you're in the soil. Like you're doing these really small kind of mundane tasks that involve like dirt and soil, right? And so these aren't just things that it's like, oh yeah, like there's some jobs now that are really hard and manual labor and like these are kind of evidences that the world has fallen. It's like, well, no. The world was like that before sin. And actually the first person we see doing this kind of work, who is it? First person we see working in the world. It's God. Right, like God doesn't just like speak things into existence, but he speaks things into existence. You have this kind of cosmic creation story and then he like gets down into the soil and he's like, I'm going to now plant a garden. And so he like works the soil. He tills it like he literally creates a garden. So God's the first gardener. And what that means for us just practically is that means that when God thinks of work and productivity for humanity, he doesn't kind of define there's high jobs and low jobs. There's jobs that are like, these are really valuable jobs. And then these are jobs you do if you can't get one of the valuable ones. No, the very first thing that God does is he gets on his knees metaphorically, and he like works the soil. 
Gardening involves the mind and body, right? Mental and manual labor. He's saying both of these kinds of things have value. You have to move stuff, dig around, get dirty. Take what's there and use it to make something and make something more beautiful, more useful. And God takes humanity, puts them into the garden, and he basically says, hey, continue my work. This thing I've done, keep going with it. Verse 15 of chapter 2, he says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to do what? To work it and to keep it. And if you go down to verse 18, it just says this, then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. So in this kind of task I've given him, this role of worker, I'm going to make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called them, that was its name. So the Lord God put the man in the garden to work and keep it, but also to name the animal. So there's like this like physical work, but also this like mental work, right? Like you're, you're forming things with your hands, but you're also thinking hard. What should this weird thing that kind of looks like a duck supposed to be called, right? What do you call this thing? It's like mental exertion. But then he's also given a helper, Eve. And so Eve is basically supposed to help with this creation mandate. She comes in as like a companion to work and keep the garden, but also Genesis 1 defines what this job is also supposed to look like. Genesis 1 says you're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. You're supposed to fill the earth and subdue it. Actually, Genesis 1 even says have dominion over it. And so the idea that Genesis presents us with is that human beings are put into the world and that the world is good, but the world needs to be cultivated. The soil needs to be worked. Take what is here, but shape it, use it, mold it, bring forth something that's even more useful and more beautiful. There's, there's a, a book written by Tim Keller called Every Good Endeavor. And if you, if you haven't read this, this is a super helpful book. Um, some of the ideas in this sermon come, come from his kind of study of just work in the Bible. And I wanna just read this to you because he's kind of defining like, how are we supposed to understand work, especially in the Garden of Eden, like before sin, but even just how do we understand it broadly? What does it mean to be a worker, an image bearer who's supposed to cultivate the world around us? Well, this is what he says. If we are to be image bearers with regard to creation, then we will carry on his pattern of work. And his world is not hostile, so it needs to be kind of beaten down as though it were an enemy. Rather, its potential is just undeveloped. It needs to be cultivated like a garden. So we are not to relate to the world as kind of park rangers whose job is not to change their space, but just merely to preserve things as they are. But nor are we to kind of like pave over the garden, right? At the created world and turn it into like a parking lot. No, we're meant to be gardeners who basically take this kind of stance in relation to the things around us. They dig up the ground, they rearrange it with a goal in mind to rearrange the raw material of the garden so that it produces food flowers and beauty and actually this is the pattern for all of our work it is creative and it is also assertive it is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish now listen to what he says he says this pattern is found in all kinds of work right farming takes the physical material of soil and seeds and produces food music takes physics and sound and rearranges it into something beautiful and thrilling that brings meaning to life and we take fabric, we make pieces of clothing, we push a broom, we clean up a room. When we use technology to harness the forces of electricity, when we take unformed, naive human minds and teach it a subject, when we teach a couple how to resolve their relational disputes, when we take simple materials and turn them into a poignant work of art, we are continuing God's original work of forming, filling, and subduing. Whenever we bring order out of chaos, whenever we draw out creative potential, whenever we elaborate and unfold creation beyond where it was when we found it, 
we are following God's pattern of creative cultural development. Saying that's what work is. And it's not something that we do because we're no longer in the garden. It's not like a necessary evil that just exists because we need to survive now. But work is something that we do because we are made in the image of God. And God was the first worker. And so we work in the world because we're like him. So work is built into the DNA of what it means to be a human being. We can't escape from it, but if we understand ourselves, we shouldn't want to because we're gonna understand that work is actually one of the things God's given us to thrive and flourish. We're designed for it. It is very good, but we don't live in that chapter of the story. We live in this chapter of the story. And what sin did is sin took what God gave to us as a blessing meant to lead us to thriving and flourishing, and it turned it into a curse. If you read through chapter three, you find out that sin didn't just affect Adam and Eve, but it affected everything. It affected marriage, it affected childbirth, it affected relationships. And actually one of the the most profound moments in Genesis three is you're figuring out what what has happened now that Adam and Eve ate from this tree, right? Rejected God, rebelled against him, brought sin and death into the world. What has happened now to our world? And Genesis three says something profound. It says the earth itself, creation itself, the ground itself, has been cursed. And this is what it says. This is chapter three, verse 17. And to Adam, he said this, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree, which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. And you're gonna do this process, this kind of painful, toiling process until you return to the ground. For out of the ground you were taken and for you are dust and to dust you shall return. And you go down to the end, verse 23, it just says, therefore the Lord God sent him from the garden of Eden, out of the garden, to work the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, this flaming angel, in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So humanity is created to work and keep the garden, but now they're kicked out of the garden and now their work, the context of their work is now they're gonna work the ground and the ground is cursed. And we all have different stories of this, right? Stories of like trying to work and trying to be productive and finding out like this Ground I'm working with is cursed. And I remember learning this by working on cars, okay? I believe there's nothing that teaches you more about the futility of life than spending a few hours underneath a 1990s Mitsubishi, okay? If you wanna learn how unproductive and unfruitful life can be, buy a 1993 Mitsubishi 3000 GT, okay? That will help you figure this out. You get underneath, you're thinking, I'm gonna make a quick repair. It's gonna be great. I'm gonna change this part out, put a better part in. And you get under there, And within like 30, 40 minutes, like everything has gone wrong. You have rust in your eyes. You have blood on your hands. There's oil everywhere. And you're trying to like put the part back on and you can't because the horrible bolts Mitsubishi uses all rust and they all snap off as soon as you put a wrench on them. So you go to the store and you stand in that part of the hardware store that no man ever wants to be where you're trying to get one of those drill kits. You know what I'm talking about? You're like this drill kit, so you drill into the screw so you can back this thing out. And it's like if you ever see anyone in that part of the hardware store, you're just literally like, God, thank you, that's not me. 
Like, thank you, that's not me. It's like this part of this hardware story, just like evidence, like we live in this cursed world, right? It's horrible. I remember working on this car for a full two years, okay? We redid everything. Like, we took the whole thing out. We took the engine out, redid the top end. Like, we put turbochargers on it, new suspension, new ECU, everything. I remember being underneath the dash of this car one night, like, for multiple nights in a row, rewiring a new ECU into the computer. So I'm, like, soldering this, like, underneath my dash. There's, like, solder, like, falling on my face. I'm like, this is brutal, back-breaking work. So much time, so much sweat equity. But in the end, it was awesome. Beautiful car, okay? Beautiful. New ram suspension, the whole thing. It was red. I loved it. Four-inch exhaust coming right off the turbos. When you started it up, the whole neighborhood would wake up. It's fantastic. And then when we finally took it to get tuned on the dyno, kind of this last final touch you do when you're modifying a car is you need to tune this thing. So you got this, you're sucking a whole bunch of air into this head. You're making this thing powerful. You got to tune it. So the tuner, the guy who's finalizing the engine mapping, how much air to fuel, he blew it up on the dyno. It blew up. Like literally, in two years of work, all of a sudden it starts knocking, spun bearing, metal fragments are everywhere, engine ruined. And I'm standing there and all this time, all this monergy, all this money, monergy, money and energy, monergy. <laughs> and honestly, a very real part of my heart and soul had been like poured into this act of creation and cultivating. I'm, I'm going to make this beautiful thing. And then you're standing over it and you're just like, what? This car is cursed. <laughs> like it's cursed from the very first like bolt you're trying to work on to the very end. Like it's cursed through and through. And it was. This car had a real demon. No, I'm just kidding. It didn't. Okay. But it was cursed because all of creation is cursed. The ground is cursed. And this is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. It just says, cursed is the ground because of you. The ground, like the thing we stand on and eat from, like the thing that everything else kind of exists in, the ground, our reality is cursed. And it means work. The thing that we will do for 80 to 90% of our lives while we are awake whether it's our career or our kids, our homes, our hobbies, the things that we exert ourselves towards to make something and create something of value, this is now part of the world and part of our story that doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And we see this in a bunch of different areas, but one of the things we see is that sin brings difficulty. Like just pain, difficulty. Right? It says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. And he says, in pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So it's like sweat, and pain, and, and it's like Genesis is saying this wasn't the way work was supposed to be. Work in the garden wasn't meant to be this like sweaty, painful affair, but now it is. Work is hard. Often it's like backbreaking. It's mentally exhausting. It's stressful, right? Some of you, you live these lives of constant stress and anxiety because the thing you're doing in the world, the work you're doing, is just really hard and difficult. It feels never-ending. It's like you finish one thing and then there's another thing. It's like this sweaty thing. You never get to just sit down and rest. It's just like work after work after work, thing after thing after thing. And it's just like hamster wheel of just trying to survive and get ahead and figure out how do I produce and make something and find meaning and purpose in this world. And this is what he says to Adam. But he says another thing to Eve. He says, I will surely multiply, multiply your pain in childbearing. Right? In pain you shall bring forth children. And this doesn't mean that like 
men and women are like fundamentally different, right? Like men only experience pain when they're farming and women only experience pain when they're giving birth to children. It's like, it's basically just a way of summarizing like all of life in the human condition. It's like whether you are cultivating a field or you're cultivating a family or a community, whatever you're trying to bring forth out of this world, it is going to be painful and it's not gonna work like it should. But it's not just difficulty, sin brings with it futility. It says thorns and thistles will come up for you. When you try to use your hands and your mind and your strength and your ambition to cultivate and bring something good from the world around you, the curse of sin means that instead of fruit and joy and blessing, you're gonna end up with thorns and thistles. No one ever tries to bring that about, but so often it's what we get, right? I didn't try to have a gigantic hunk of metal that had Mitsubishi on it. I was trying to make a fast car I could race people with. And instead I got thorns and thistles, right? It's an example of working towards something you have in your head, but not being able to bring it about in reality. And this is true of all of our stories. You can never quite paint the picture you have in your head. You can never achieve the kind of just society that you dream about. You can never write the song you had in your dream. You can never quite find it and accomplish it and create it even if you do have the vision for it. Because the paint you're working with is cursed. The ground is cursed. But work is futility also because even if you go through the toil and pain and labor, there's no guarantee you're gonna end up with something useful. Or even if you, 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 you have the vision, you put in the time, you put in the labor, you get the grades, you get the resume, you get the interview, you work for years and years, and then you might not get the job. That happens all the time. Or you work so hard to get the affection of the girl you like, and then you watch her fall in love with someone else. Or are you thinking about this election, right? Like just put your political views aside for a second. There are thousands and thousands of people in our country who worked for like presidential candidates or like different legislator officials, like all along the strata who spent like four years of their lives fighting and working and toiling to get someone elected and half of them lost. <laughs> that is devastating to work so hard for something and to have so little at the end of it. But that's our world. Work doesn't bring about the results it should. And often at the end of all of our work, there isn't even anything to stand back and enjoy, but instead at the end of all of our pain and all of our labor, oftentimes the only thing we have is something to mourn. But work is also futility because even if you get what you want, even if you work hard and your vision turns into reality and you get the thing, work is futility because it is always unfulfilling. Right, even when you end up creating the thing you had in your mind, it doesn't satisfy you what you thought it would, right? Even if you actually get what you wanted, joy is fleeting. Happiness always eludes you outside of Eden. This is why people who live in mansions and, and drive, you know, they fly in their private jets. This is why they are almost always horribly unhappy people. They spent their whole life working for something. And unlike some of us, they actually get it. And what you find out in the end is that they get the same thing we do, thorns and thistles. Doesn't matter if your thorns or thistles is a small house in Madison or a giant mansion in Beverly Hills, it's the same, because it's all cursed. But the other thing is that sin brings about scarcity. 
The other thing that's interesting about our work in the garden compared to our work today is that work as originally designed was meant to be something we did under the provision of God. There's already a garden there. There's already trees. There's already abundance there. Work was never meant to be a means of providing ourselves, but God had given us a garden that was providing for every need. And so work takes place in the garden. That's what it was supposed to be. But now it doesn't take place in the garden. Now it takes place in the wilderness. Not in a place of abundance, but in a place of scarcity. And because of this, it means that sin hasn't just frustrated our ability to cultivate the world, but actually work ends up so often being a competition with a bunch of other image bearers of God for what feels like a very finite scarcity of resources. And so you end up with pyramid schemes, scams, predatory loans, essential oils. I'm just kidding about the last one. But like, really, like so much of work ends up being this, right? Is it's like, because it's not this goal, how do I figure out how to lift up this community and grow this and make it better? But instead, work becoming this like very fearful thing we do to try to not end up at the bottom of it all. And if I don't work hard, I'm gonna end up like crushed under the weight of this. I'm gonna end up impoverished. There's such a scarcity of money, a scarcity of prestige, a scarcity of meaning. And if I don't work hard and try to cultivate something in this, I'm gonna end up lost and at the bottom of this. And so because that sin changes what our work is, it changes it oftentimes from cultivation to this act of desecration, where you build an empire and you build a business, but the only way you do that is by crushing the competition and destroying someone else's way of life. And the only way you end up buying the clothes you want and can afford them for the price you want is someone else has to go into slave labor for you to buy them. And so this cultivating work so often because of sin turns into this desecrating work. So sin brings scarcity, but sin also brings idolatry. Because we don't have God anymore, right? We're cut off from him. He's in the garden. Like conceptually, he's over there and we are over here now. There's the garden of God and there's the wilderness where we exist. We're created as God's image bearers, those who reflect his glory in our work, those who work because he's called us by his name. But now our work becomes this thing we do to try to find glory anywhere. Because we're so hungry, we're so thirsty for it, we're created for it, we don't have it. So work becomes this way of trying to find the glory of God. But work also ends up being this way we try to find a name for ourselves. But because the ground is cursed, This leads to anxiety and depression and insecurity and this complete lack of fulfillment because a cursed ground is a terrible replacement for the radiance and the glory of God. But because we've lost God and our sin is separated from us, it's all we have. And the last thing this text says, maybe the saddest thing is that sin brought about mortality. Verse 19, it just says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, because out of it you were taken, for you are from dust, and to dust you shall return. Here's the final devastating end to all of our work because of sin, that all of our toil and effort and time will one day be laid in the ground and your body will decompose and it will turn to dust. And not only you, but everyone. All humanity now will share the same end. If you painted a perfect picture, you did it. You're like, I I thought of this, it's amazing. 
eventually no one will remember you. And even if you build an empire, eventually it will be dismantled. Even if you grew a beautiful family, you won't be around to enjoy them. If you brought about justice and peace, it will eventually devolve into tyranny. And even if you build a beautiful city, it's going to eventually crumble. And even if you manage to bring something up out of the futility and difficulty of this cursed ground, you will only have a few years to enjoy it, but then you yourself will actually be laid into the cursed ground itself. And even if you say, okay, well, I understand that. Death makes my life difficult, but I'm going to work and exist and live so that I can produce something that will bless all the generations after me. But it only takes one single fool to come along to tear down all of your work. Ecclesiastes says it like this. It's like a lament. It's a lament on the reality of what sin has caused our world to be. It just says, what do people gain from all of their labors which they toil under the sun? All things are wearisome, more than one can even say. The eye has never had enough of seeing, the ear its fill of hearing. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, every type of work, he's saying, and all of them are meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. That's the story of our world because of sin. And as we read actually some of these like early chapters in Genesis, one of the things we should do as the people of God, as we don't just kind of live in this world we've always lived in, but we actually understand that the, the world we live in today is not meant to be this way. One of the things that the beginning of Genesis is supposed to do in our hearts is cause us to be people who mourn and lament and weep and wail at the reality of how horrible our situation is. And actually, a lot of the wisdom of the Bible, part of the wisdom of what it's trying to do is actually it's trying to say, hey, I know that the world has kind of given you this false hope for your work and this false hope for your life. But half of the wisdom of the Bible is trying to just pull back this facade and say, no, actually, here's the way the world really is. That if this world is all you have, eventually the sun is going to die and with it, Everything anyone has ever worked for is going to burn up. Not just the things, but the memories themselves. It all will be nothing in the end. People who are total nihilists, who don't believe in God, don't believe in Jesus, those are the people who are holding like the rational, logical position in this world. But the story of the Bible doesn't end there. There is another human being who comes into the story who also works. And his name is Jesus. And what's so fascinating about Jesus is Jesus, right, he is God, but he's also fully and completely man. So he's this person that heaven and earth are kind of slammed together. So it's like the garden of God and kind of the, the wilderness that we live in today. They're kind of like slammed together in this human being called Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus do for like, 30 years of his life. He just works. He works. When, when Jesus starts his preaching ministry, when he's 30, he, he preaches for like three years. He heals people. He does all this like miraculous stuff. And clearly we look at that and say, that is an amazing, important work. We're glad you came, Jesus. He dies on a cross. He raises to life. Profound human being. But what did he do for 30 years of his life? The Bible tells us he was a carpenter. Like he's known as that. They're like, isn't this the carpenter? And he's like known for that, which means he's probably pretty good. 
They're like, this is the dude who makes those chairs that like they don't squeak. It's incredible. When God became a human being, he did not just come to die on a cross. He did that. That was the purpose. That was like an end goal. That was the final destiny. But he spent 30 years of his life just doing things, cultivating, shaping materials, being with people. Like he was probably at some point like fixing stairs on the side of a house. And the question is, why does Jesus, who is God, who's very important, why does he spend so much time doing things that we would look at and say, this is mundane, it is beneath you, it is not worth your time. Why are you doing that? He's doing that because of what he does at the end of his life. On the cross, Jesus Christ entered into our pain. He experienced the meaningless and purposeless chaos of our existence. He experienced actually the thirst and the hunger of our scarcity and wilderness. He ends up paying the price for our idolatry. And in the end, he ends up wrapping himself in our mortality and his body is lowered into the ground that has been cursed because of us. And as all of this is happening, the very last words Jesus speaks before his body is lowered into the ground is, it is finished. My work is finished. The reason he says this is because three days later, the man who had been buried into the ground rose to life. This changes everything. Everything. Because the work that Jesus came to do was that through his body being swallowed into the curse of our sin, into the cursed ground of our world, through his resurrection, he would actually create a way to resurrect and recreate all things. Romans 8 says this, and it is, it's stunning, okay? And it has to do not just with you, it has to do with everything you've ever done in your entire life. All your work, all your labor, all your toil. This is what Romans 8 says. For the creation itself waits with eager longing for what? For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, it was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What Romans 8 is saying is that it is not just human beings who are waiting for redemption and salvation and recreation. He is saying that actually all of creation is eagerly waiting for this. It's waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. And it doesn't just mean creation like and kind of set apart. It means like the houses that have been built, the gardens that have been cultivated, the science that has been promulgated, like the growth and technology and work and productivity and fruit that humanity has forged through its very difficult, arduous journey. It's saying all of that is eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Why? It's because in the end of the story, we're not brought back to a garden, but we are brought to a city. A city. A city has come about in the story of the Bible, not just because God made it, but because human beings through their long trajectory of time have created technology, have created bricks, have created communities, we end up not at a garden, we end up at a city, which means that actually the things that have happened in the story of humanity have actually in part affected the end of the story. 
Do you know what that means, that it's a city, not a garden? What it means is that your work matters. It means that your work matters. It means that the painful toil and burden that humanity has carried with them to create and raise something up from this cursed ground, it means that at the end of the story, all of that work does not crumble and deteriorate and get swallowed into the cursed ground. It means that it does not get consumed in the final end of this place. But instead what we see at the end of the story is that God isn't just going to resurrect and recreate his people. But all of the things that are good and all that is beautiful and all of the culture and all of the work they did with their hands and their minds and their bodies and their heart, those things will also experience a resurrection and recreation along with the sons and daughters of God. This is why Jesus can spend most of his entire life building furniture and building houses. Because there's something of that, there's something in that, that is gonna be brought forward into God's new humanity. And some of the things that we look at in our world and we go, this is so mundane, it's so pointless, it's just this like necessary evil in our world and I, I'm spending like most of my life doing this. God himself came into our world and he spent most of his life doing those things. Because it is not just his work on the cross that affects eternity, but it's also his chair building. It was also the way he played with children. It was also the most mundane things he did like washing the disciples' feet, which wasn't just something he did so he could prove a point to them about service. It was something he did because the feet were dirty and needed to be washed. And he was like, me bending down and doing this is actually going to in some way affect the forever reality of the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus' work mattered and so does yours. Guys, this is not just so we can have a theology of work and we can kind of think rightly about what the new heavens and new earth is. The reason we need this is so that we can actually live our lives before the face of God, all of our lives. Christians are often so bad at this, right? It's like we're in the world and we know that like, we know heaven's real, we believe in heaven we, and we have this relationship with God, but we kind of live in this world today. And, but most of our most of our lives were like raking leaves and fixing stuff and going to work and putting numbers in spreadsheets and there feels like this massive disconnect between the things of God, the things that are spiritual and holy and good and the things we're told to set our minds on and then the things that we spend like 90% of our time doing and often there's this like feeling in our heart of like despair because we're like, I, I wanna think about God. I wanna, like I wanna do this and so some people even think, well maybe the only real path in life is to just be like a, a minister or a missionary or I'll go and like, I'll work somewhere, I'll do like ministry for my job and then that will allow me to be like this full, complete Christian person where all of my life will matter. Most other religions say something like that. This world's broken, it's failed. And if you live in a certain way, you can eventually leave this place, experience heaven, experience God. But the gospel says that God himself became a human being. He came into our physical world and what that means is that the things you do with your hands and your time, the things you cultivate, whether it is framing a house or it is trying to fix someone's heart, what it means is that those things matter. And not only do they matter, but it means that when you do them, God is with you. And if you remember that God is with you, 
and you know that he has put his spirit into you, that means that wherever you are is this tiny slice of heaven where you are bringing the goodness of heaven into this broken world with you. If you work in that kind of way, where you work for the Lord and not for men, you work for the king and not for yourself, then every single time you do anything, no matter how small or mundane, no matter if it's like the 50th diaper you've changed today, or you are trying to have a merge between two of the most powerful companies in the world, it means that whatever you are doing, if it is good, Jesus Christ looks at that and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. So when we leave this place today, you should go to work tomorrow. Wherever your job is, whatever it is, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you work at the courthouse, you should go to work and you should try to cultivate the goodness of God's kingdom wherever you're at because your work matters. It matters to God. It matters to eternity. Let's pray. Jesus, I love this because so much of my life, God, it feels like I work so hard for things that I just, and it just end up, they like crumble in my, my hands like sand. And it's just like, what's the point of this? Like this world feels difficult, it feels hard. And so often the things we put our mind to and our hands to, they, they just, they, they seem like they produce nothing. And Jesus, we rejoice this morning that you came into this world so that you could recreate this world. And that there's a day coming where all of the things we long for and we hope and we want and we have visions for our world to be like this, there's a day coming where it's going to be like that because you are preparing a place for us. And you put your spirit in us so that the things that we even do with our hands, they make some difference for eternity. And so God, I pray that you'd help us become Christians that don't just have a, a view that when we come to church, we're being spiritual or when we read our Bibles, we're worshiping you, but God, you'd give us a view of our lives that you have come into our world and have come into our hearts and our minds through your spirit so that wherever we go, you are there. And whenever we try to forge and cultivate something good, you are right there saying, that is awesome. Keep going. I love you. Help us worship you this morning. In your name.